You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. What is the biblical explanation for body, soul and spirit? The greatest lie ever told, that the man has an immortal soul, is refuted by both the Old Testament of the Bible and the New, in which the expression immortal soul is never found. Man's true destiny is revealed as eternal death, apart from a bodily resurrection at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got a very important subject ahead of us this evening, and I have saved actually the rich man and Lazarus, the parable, to last. I think you'll see why I did that. We also have a go-to verse, and it is this verse in Genesis 3.19, which we'll refer to uh, several times in our talk. We read, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And the context we know was when Adam and Eve took up the tree, and uh, this was God's result when they did, and uh, this is what happened. Uh, First, what is the first principle called involving body, soul, and spirit? And that first principle is the nature of man. And this first principle, actually first principles are very important and how we live, how we believe. And this illustration here to the right of my screen, and I guess it's to the right of yours as well, is a picture of why it's important. Directly involved with this first principle includes going to heaven, hell, or purgatory when one dies. And many more false doctrines which we will see come under this first principle which we've entitled the nature of man. What is important is what the Bible says concerning the nature of man and that's what we're gonna be pursuing. When we go to the Bible, we'll find in the Old Testament that the word soul comes from the Hebrew word nephesh. And in the Bible means primarily a breathing creature, a body capable of life, and applies to man, beasts, fish, insects, which we will show. In Genesis 1 and 20, and God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. And literally in the Hebrew, it has the meaning of having a soul because the word nephesh, which is the Hebrew for soul, appears actually in the Hebrew text. In Hebrew, Nephesh appears in verse 20, but remains not translated by the King James Version. And we ask why? Because other translations do translate it, 
Uh, Rotterham, for example, in the Emphasized Bible, in verse 20 says, let the water swarm with abundance of living soul. So the word nephesh is there and it's translated by Rotterham's soul, which is usually the way it's translated. So why didn't the King James Version translators translate the Hebrew word nephesh in Genesis 1 and 20? And the reason is they thought the soul was immortal. The translators couldn't imagine immortal insects, flies, mosquitoes, for example. Uh, they thought the word soul was immortal. So this presented the problem and they didn't translate it uh, in verse 20 of chapter one. The difficulty continues in the King James translation in the Leviticus 21 verse 11. It says, neither shall he go to in to any dead body. Now in the Hebrew, that word for dead body is nephesh. It would be dead nephesh, dead soul. Nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. So they didn't translate it dead soul, they translated it dead body because of their belief. It goes on and Haggai, just another example, we could give several. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body, or, and the word is dead nephesh or dead soul, touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Why did the King James Version translate nephesh, dead body, and not dead soul? And again, we have the answer is they thought that the soul was immortal. Souls, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, we can show die. They're not immortal. And a good example of that is in the New Testament. It's not the word nephesh because the New Testament is written in Greek and it is the word suki. And in Mark chapter 8, 35 to 37, we find the word suki a couple of times. Let me read. For whosoever will save his life, and that's our word suki, which is translated or should be translated soul, shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life, suki, for my sake and for the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own suki? So we got it translated life a couple times, now we got it translated soul. Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul, his suki? Now as you can see, it's translated in the King James Version, uh, 58 times soul, 40 times life, and uh, a few miscellaneous, over 100 times it appears. Why did the King James translators translate suki, both life and soul? Well, the King James translators drew a difference between the souls of men as intellectual souls, as compared to all other creatures. Scripture, however, doesn't draw that difference, for creatures don't sin, but they still die. So we have a dying soul. How does the church counter that the soul is mortal? Because the church says the soul is immortal. Here's how they do it. 
I have a couple quotes here. From the Catholic Church, this is the Lateran Council of 1513, a long time ago. Wherefore, some have dared to assert concerning the nature of the reasonable soul, that it is mortal. We, with the approbation of the sacred council, do condemn and retrobate all those who assert that the intellectual soul is mortal seeing according to the canon of Pope Clement I, or V, rather. The Catholic Church decreed in 1513 AD that all who didn't appear to the soul as immortal would be shunned and punished as heretics. William Tyndale, long time ago to 1484 to 1536, he translated the Bible from Latin into English, well known for that. But he did not believe that the soul was immortal. In 1530 AD, responding to Sir Thomas More's objection, Tyndale said, and I quote, all souls die and sleep till doomsday, and ye, in putting them, the departed souls in heaven, hell and purgatory, destroy the arguments wherewith Christ and Paul prove the resurrection. So we can see one first principle here, and now it's affecting another first principle, that of the doctrine of the resurrection. Goes on, and again, if the souls be in heaven, tell me why they be not in as good a case as the angels be. And then what cause is there of the resurrection? So this is what William Tyndale said back then, and there was, of course, a discussion uh, on this, and uh, we have it written up, actually, between Sir Thomas Moore and Tyndale. What happened to Tyndale? Well, Tyndale was strangled and burned as a heretic by the instigation of the church. Now, this might surprise you. These are three Bible passages from an, a United Church minister. And the United Church, for the most part, believed that souls are immortal. And he's stating why he doesn't believe souls are immortal. So we have a United Church minister. By the way, in the United Church, you can believe just about anything you want to believe. In fact, uh, in our area, there is a United Church minister, and she doesn't believe in God. She's an atheist. So that uh, I don't think this minister, United States minister, will be burned at the stake. But we see his reasons, and there are scriptural reasons. In Ecclesiastes 9 and verse 5, we read, for the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So this is one of the reasons why this United Church minister, he doesn't believe that souls are immortal, and we would agree with him. He gives three references. He goes to Psalm 6, verse 4 to 5, where he reads, Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. And that's the Hebrew word nephesh. O save me for thy mercy's sake. 
For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? So no wonder as he goes to the scripture why he doesn't believe that the soul is immortal. He gives another reference in Psalm 115, verse 17. The dead praise not the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. So that he believes that when you're dead, you are dead. And we would agree with him. So what about the intellectual soul? The Bible doesn't draw this difference, as already referenced in Genesis 1 and 20. Nor are there any references in the Bible of the intellectual soul. The soul of man is mortal, as are the souls of creatures. Both are of the dust, and both return to dust again. We see that in Genesis 3, verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And in Psalms 49, verse 20, we read, Man that is in honor, and understandeth not, is like the beast that perish. So it doesn't draw any difference here. The man who doesn't understand, he's like the beast, and they both perish. So what about the spirit? Is the spirit immortal? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7 has this to say. It says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, and it's the Hebrew word ruach, shall return unto God who gave it. So, is the spirit immortal? It returns unto God who gave it. When the life power of God is removed, man, like every moving creature, returns to the dust, much like pulling the cord on a lamp and the light goes out. When that happens to us, we go out. And we return to dust. Well, what about the spirit of man and beast? Ecclesiastes 3.19 ties these nicely together. We read, For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beast. So we got man and we got beast. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, and that's our Hebrew word ruach, one spirit, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast. For all is vanity, all go into one place, all are of the dust, and all return to dust again. That's pretty, pretty straightforward. These church doctrines of heaven, hell, and purgatory are great money makers for the church However, the Bible is clear. Man is mortal, and at death he returns to death, and his thoughts perish. And our go-to verse was Genesis 3.19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Another reference, Psalm 146 and verse 4, his breath, which is the Hebrew word ruach, spirit, usually translated spirit, his spirit goeth forth. He returns to his earth. 
And that very day, his thoughts perished. It all goes back to the serpent and the Garden of Eden. We read in verse 4 of Genesis 3, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely, You shall surely not die. Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Who was right? The serpent? Psalm 146, verse 4, His breath, his ruach, his spirit goeth forth. He returneth to the earth. In that very day, his thoughts perish. So, no thoughts, no breath, you're dead. The serpent's lie brought corruption and mortality on all creation. This lie was subtle, being a part truth. However, God's command was clear. In verse 17 of the second chapter of Genesis, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So who was right? God or the serpent? Unfortunately, Eve believed the serpent. But who do we believe? The nature of man, this is our overall first principle topic here, is contrary and prone to sin. That's our nature. We see that in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. It says about our nature, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and who can know it? No wonder God decreed, verse 19 of Genesis 3, our go-to verse, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. What about heaven? Do we go there? In John 3, verse 13, we have this. It says, and no man, no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. It's hard to find a more clear reference, but a non-related question arises. How here was Jesus in heaven? Well, Philippians 3 verse 20 is helpful. And we read, For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' mind was in heaven, remembering the lofty context of the Gospel of John that lifts our mind to think on higher level. However, in Acts chapter two, we find a scripture that I think is even better in showing that no one goes to heaven. For the context in Acts chapter two is very straightforward and it shows we don't go to heaven. In Acts chapter two in verse 29 we read, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, 
he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So what is the context here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29? And it's Peter, the apostle Peter, and he's preaching. This is after Christ has died and has gone, rose and has gone to heaven. And he's converting these people that Christ is, Jesus is the real Christ. And here's what he's doing. So we say the context is showing Jesus is the Messiah. He does this by contrasting a dead David with a raised Jesus who is at God's right hand. So we have this contrast. And once this contrast is seen, it becomes a powerful proof to show neither David or any of the faithful are alive and in heaven. For David, it says, is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. So if David didn't go to heaven, how much chance have we to go to heaven? In Acts 2, verse 34, we read, for David is not ascended into the heavens. But as straightforward as you can get. But he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand. The point from the context, if David had an immortal soul and gone to heaven, Peter wouldn't have made this contrast of a dead David and a risen Jesus to show Jesus had been raised from the dead. And this is what he was trying to convince his audience, that Jesus was alive. And he contrasts that with a dead David. Another question comes up. Why is doctrine so divisive? I would say to test and develop us that we might discern good and evil. Jesus, in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, says... Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth? I tell you, nay, but rather division. From the very beginning, God divided light from darkness, day from night, waters above and waters below. Why the divide? Because the bad will corrupt the good. This divide is seen between the sons of God, this is back in Genesis, the line of Seth, and the sons of men, the line of Cain. And when in Genesis 6 and 2, the sons of God married the daughters of men, that would be the line of Cain, the bad corrupted the good, and in time caused the flood. In nature, it's the bad apple principle. The vice is, it's wise to recognize Luke 12, verse 51, to the reason why there are divisions and why separation is preached so. To the Corinthians, this is 2 Corinthians 6 and 17, it says, Wherefore come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. So he's saying to come out, to be separate. Why is doctrine so divisive? To develop and concern. For example, contained in the first principle, nature of man is the false doctrine of original sin. And this is defined by the Catholic Encyclopedia, which says, 
Original sin is the sin that Adam committed. A consequence of this first sin, the hereditary stain, the hereditary stain with which we are born on account of our origin. Adam and Eve transmitted to their descendants human nature, wounded by their own first sin, and hence deprived of original holiness and justice. This deprivation is called original sin. Now this is according to the Catholic Encyclopedia. It goes way back to the Council of Trent, which was way back in the 1500s, and in section number five it says, and I quote, while original sin is effaced by baptism, concupiscence still remains in the person baptized. The root is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which says, By his sin, Adam, as the first man, lost the original holiness and justice he had received from God, not only for himself, but for all human beings. Oh, false doctrine, what it does, it acts like leaven, and with time corrupts the whole loaf, the loaf being, in this case, the church. And we have several references here. In Matthew 13 and 33, this parable of Christ, of the woman who hid leaven in the meal until the whole was leavened. Let me read the, the parable. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. So what leaven does, it permutates and eventually corrupts the whole loaf. In this case, I would suggest the whole church. The outcome, the church today is completely corrupted by false doctrine. It's very clear in the Bible what leaven does. Galatians 5 verse 9 says, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. In Matthew 16 and verse 12, it ties leaven with doctrine. Let me read. Then understood they how that the, he bade them not be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So we can tie in here with leaven to doctrine and the corruption. So what happens when a Bible first principle, doctrine, is corrupted? Well, biblical first principles connect together. So that false understanding in one affects other first principles, and like leaven, doesn't stop. For example, the nature of man is corrupted by the doctrine of original sin, which is the root to the doctrine of inherited legal condemnation, which says mankind is born with sin, already in the flesh. History shows these false doctrines have spread like leaven, corrupting six first principle doctrines, and they are the nature of man, the nature of Christ, baptism, devil, atonement, and resurrection. This picture here is kind of an interesting one, it's of an iceberg, but it gives us some idea of what happens here. You have original sin, and it corrupts all the way up to resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection. Fortunately, at this doctrine, we can actually see 
and see what scripture says about it and show that this has to be a corruption. So what we have here is six first principles corrupted and exposed by these six questions. The nature of man, this first principle, is corrupted. And the question is, is mankind under original sin at birth? That's one of the questions that we would ask. The nature of Christ, was Jesus at birth alienated from his father because of being under original sin? Baptism, does baptism remove original sin? Devil, is the devil sin in the flesh? The BUSF cause nine equates the two. And I have the quote, the devil or sin in the flesh. Atonement, is there atonement for inherited legal or original sin? And the resurrection. Does being baptized remove original sin and inherited legal condemnation? And is this required to be resurrected? So all these questions come up, but we can see how that one false doctrine can permeate other false doctrines. In this case, there are at least six. So where does sin in the flesh appear in the Bible, or does it? Well, it does. It's found in Romans 8 and verse 3. We read, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. What does that mean? Is there sin in the flesh? Or is it saying Jesus condemned sin in the flesh? Well, we've got to get the context on that, and that's key to any interpretation, is context, context, context. So, looking at Romans 8 and verse 3, is what mankind couldn't do, but what Jesus did do, condemning sin? I would suggest that's the context. And he did that in the flesh. And though he had our flesh nature, he didn't sin, which was amazing. For Jesus did this, having our nature. We have not a high priest, this is found in Hebrews, and high priests which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Jesus took on our nature. He had our nature, and therefore he was tempted at all points, like we are. But, and this is the amazing thing, it was in the flesh, but he didn't succumb to the flesh. He was able to counteract that with the word of God, and he didn't sin. That's the wonder of it. And so we would read, Romans 8 and 3, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. It was, was the wonder of it. So, of course, they don't have commas in the original, uh, but I would have put a comma there, condemned, comma, sin in the flesh. So what about sin in the flesh? Sinful flesh in Romans 8 and 3 stands for our contrary 
sin-prone nature, which Jesus condemned by not sinning, even though having a mortal flesh body. And we just read Romans 8 and 3, but this is in the New King James Version. It reads, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And I put in, Jesus had our nature, prone sin-prone nature. He condemned sin in the flesh. That was amazing. The wonder was that Jesus was able to always counter the flesh, even being crucified. What was amazing is easily seen in comparing Paul and us with Jesus. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 17, we see that very graphically. It reads, Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So this is Paul, and he's commenting that the sin dwelleth in us. Verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. So we have this propensity, because of our human nature, to succumb to the trials thereof. As we get old, I'm finding that it gets even more difficult. Uh, things that you had, uh, you no longer have. Well, that brings us to the rich man and Lazarus. And that is an interesting parable. We have just read it. Does it teach that the soul is immortal? So that's our key question. Just to refresh our mind, we've read through this. Beginning at verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. Goes on. And he cried, verse 24, and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. So you look at this and you say, I can't take this thing real. Uh, it, is it a parable? I would suggest that it is. But what's it saying? How could anyone take this literally? Well, some do. And I took this from the internet, and this is how some take it. They take it that when the body dies, the spirit goes to paradise. And they would suggest in this parable that Lazarus and the thief on the cross went to paradise. And those like Caiaphas the high priest and the 
as a symbol of the rich man, go to Tartarus. And in the resurrection, you have the judgment that uh, those are in these places, and this great gulf is fixed. I can't imagine this. That the righteous go to heaven, they would say, and the wicked, like uh, uh, the rich man, go to hell. What's the scripture say? Does it contradict this? Well, Psalm 104, or 146, verse 4, certainly does. It says, his breath, his ruach, goes forth. He returneth to his earth. And that very day, his thoughts perish. So this idea of the spirit going to these two places, and this gulf being fixed, doesn't fit with scripture, at least Psalm 146. What's going on here? Another scripture, which is very clear, we've looked at it already, tells us in John 3.13 that no man has ascended up to heaven, and he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So we have a problem here with the righteous going to heaven with scripture. We also find that they give a proof here, this is in Matthew 25 and verse 46, which is kind of hard to see, so just a little above this uh, arrow, that's what their proof is, that we go to heaven. Well, what's it say? In Matthew 25, verse 46, it says, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. But there's no mention here of going to heaven. And uh, that's their proof text. Well, where did this all come from, this idea? Well, it was an idea way back at the time of Jesus. And we have a historian, fortunately, named Josephus, that wrote about that time. And he gives us insight into the beliefs of the people at that time. And here's what you've got to say. He says, they, that's these people, the Jewish people at that time of Josephus, he says, that the souls have an immortal vigor in them. This is what they believed. And that under the earth there will be rewards of punishments, according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. And the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again. So this is according to a historian, Josephus, at that time, and this, he says, is what the people believed. And we can see how Christ is working off of that, those beliefs, to uh, show uh, his understanding. So how do we interpret this parable of Jesus in Luke chapter 16? Well, first, we need to get the context and the setting. And the setting is that it's a parable given by Jesus in Perea. Perea was east of Jordan, where news of Lazarus' death came to him. And we have a number of scriptures here that we could refer to, but uh, we're not. That this was the context. The rich man is suggested to be Caiaphas. He was a Sadducee. 
who were clothed in purple and fine linen. These are all part of the description here in Luke 16. Have not heard Moses and the prophets. They hadn't heard them. For the Sadducees believed that they had not heard Moses uh, on adultery or the prophets on the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Goes on, and the likeness, we can see the parallel here, because it talks about, in the scriptures, for I have five brethren. And according to Josephus, when we compare that, Caiaphas had five brethren. So we can see Christ is using their beliefs and making his, his point. So we have Lazarus. He types the publicans and sinners who were not given even the spiritual crumbs from Caiaphas. So he's really pointing the finger at Caiaphas here and the religious establishment at that time. In the background, Lazarus had died. So this is actually brought out in John and Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. But the point that is made is that even though one rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Hell, this parable takes the popular belief as described by Josephus and shows the Pharisees that though one rose from the dead, the Sadducees wouldn't believe it. So I would suggest this interpretation actually fits very nicely and uh, has both the context and uh, the meaning with it. So in summary, man is born with a mortal, corrupting, dying nature that is naturally contrary, self-seeking, and prone to sin. The soul of man is his life being, while the spirit is his temperament, and with the body make up the person. Mankind's self-seeking nature must be continually confronted, countered, and ultimately destroyed, which Jesus did completely. Mankind, unlike the animals, has been given the opportunity to understand and be God's salvation plan. And with opportunity comes responsibility to seek, to understand, and to obey God. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt.org 
at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen. Thank you.